EU Futures Podcast, a project of the Center for the Study of Europe at Boston University. Welcome to the EU Futures Podcast, exploring the emerging future in Europe. I'm Oya Jordanian, an outreach coordinator at BU Center for the Study of Europe. Today is March 1st, and my colleague Toria Rainey talks to Joseph Wippel, a professor of practice of international relations at the BU Party School of Global Studies. Okay, so just to talk a little bit about what the project is to get you acquainted, the aim of the EU Futures Project is to launch a longer-term conversation um, about the future of Europe, about you know what next steps to take, um, what Europe means, and how these matters are important in a larger, larger global sense. Um, if you could, could you just introduce yourself and kind of explain your relationship with Europe? Well, uh, my name is uh, uh, Joe Whipple. I teach courses on intelligence. Uh, in the Fred, Frederick Party School of Global Studies here at Boston University. I've been here for uh, 10 years, and before then, I was a career CIA officer in the Directorate of Operations, and I spent um, 18 of my uh, years of my adult life in Europe, specifically. Uh, 11 of those years in Germany, uh, also three years in Austria, uh, two years in Luxembourg, and two years in Spain. So I've spent a lot of time in, uh, in Europe. I was also chief of the Europe division uh, for the Directorate of Operations at CIA. So uh, that was three years as well, so I'm familiar with the area. Okay, so I guess to just jump right in, one of the core tenets in many definitions of democracy is that of choice. Um, so the freedom to make decisions and to determine our own futures. Um, so this kind of openness to the future is a real key to success. And to paraphrase uh, Claude Lafour, we kind of need to gather and preserve uh, indetermination in contrast to totalitarian societies which act against this indetermination. So I guess my question for you is in what ways do you find choice integral to democracy? Um, and have there been certain times when you've been either propelled or restrained because of choice or the lack thereof? Well, I, um, I, I think um, there's a, a lot of countries uh, that are democratic in the sense that people vote. Uh, but there's only uh, a few countries uh, in which uh, the, uh, this is a democracy under what I call the rule of law. Uh, and that essentially is, uh, is limited to a few countries in um, Central and South America, uh, like uh, Costa Rica, Chile, uh, Uruguay, uh, maybe in Africa, still South Africa, in the Middle East, uh, Israel, uh, but that's for Israelis, uh, and, um, uh, and then a few places in Asia, like uh, Japan and Singapore, uh, and uh, some countries, South Korea, uh, going toward democracy with the rule of law. But most of the others are in what you call the Anglo-Saxon world, uh, the U.S. and Australia and New Zealand, and Western Europe, go, you know, gradually moving into Central Europe, uh, but certainly not including Russia um, or, uh, or Ukraine uh, or Central Asia. 
So essentially, there's a democracy as far as you know uh, uh, countries which have a rule of law. There's probably only about 40 of those countries in the world. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of countries vote. You know, they engage in elections, but there's no rule of law. In a couple of places that I served in, like Guatemala and Mexico, there really was that, that really did not exist. We hope it will exist sometime, but democracy is easy. All you need is a vote. Rule of law is hard. Mm -hmm. So, kind of going off of that, what barriers does this lack of rule of law, what does that create? What are kind of the downfalls of not having that system in place? Uh, well, mainly uh, arbitrariness. You know, that, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, you, you will not have your day in court. Uh, you, uh, basically, it, uh, uh, the system works on uh, bribery, works on influence, uh, it works on uh, corruption. And I'm not saying that rule of law countries are perfect, or a rule of law country is perfect anywhere, the law is perfect. I'm just saying that uh, basically uh, people feel uh, that they will be treated uh, fairly and people can have their, their day in court. Uh, this, is, this is not the case in most countries of the world. So kind of thinking about the recent crises that have faced uh, the European Union, it seems like a lot of these problems that have plagued Europe come from uh, thinking egocentrically. So in what ways do you think that we can shift that focus from a narrow thinking to a more broad, all-encompassing thinking? Well, you know, uh, it is, uh, you know, <laughs> Egocentric thinking is, uh, is not an unusual, uh, first of all, and it's probably uh, less unusual in a continent which, you know, uh, various countries have had uh, various different conditions. Also the fact that, you know, certainly in the, in the last kind of 15 years, the econ economic development of the European Union, I feel, has been uh, very uneven, uh, with some countries doing very poorly uh, on the periphery, like Greece, Spain, Portugal, uh, Ireland, and, uh, and even to some extent Italy. And then some countries doing, you know, okay, France and the United Kingdom. And then others in the center, you know, going from Scandinavia to the Alps, doing quite well, uh, including, you know, Poland and the Benelux and Germany, Austria. So it's been a very uh, uneven economic development. It, it has in, in this country as well, but, you know, it's always, this has been one country for over, you know, about 225 years, so it's, it's, it's quite a bit different. Um, and uh, I think, uh, you know, as long as you have this uh, system uh, in which, you know, you have this independent, uh, long-lasting tradition, um, when things get tough, people are, are going to tend to, you know, feel, well, you know, what we have at most in common is with our own, you know, whether it's Austrians or, or Czechs or, uh, or Polish people or French people. So it's, a, it's definitely a, a weaker part of the, uh, the European system. What ways can you imagine that would kind of bring everyone to the same level? Well, I think, uh, you know, the one that, you know, the, the level that usually people talk about and bringing them together uh, would be something... You know, but it's kind of intangible. It's called, you know, they call it leadership. Well, the only person who's really been providing much leadership in Europe uh, for the past 10 years is, is Dr. Merkel in Germany. Uh, and, uh, and that's about, 
really about the extent of it. The French president is very weak. Uh, the British are in a system of uh, are they going to uh, stay in the European mm -hmm. Union or will they uh, leave it? Uh, and I think that also is a little bit of a reflection of what you were saying, you know, different tradition. Uh, they just said simply the UK just has a different tradition than the, than the continent has. Uh, so, um, and, and I've, I've always felt that Europe is not necessarily an end in itself, it's more like a process. Um, it's never going to be uh, what the United States is. But on the other hand, you know, it will continue to progress toward, you know, um, uh, the well-being of most of its citizens. Kind of going back to that, um, the whether or not, you know, there's going to continue to be a European Union and whether or not the UK has any involvement in that. What are your thoughts? Just kind of a broad question. Well, as far as the UK is concerned, well, mm -hmm. I mean, I think it would be a mistake for them to leave uh uh, the European Union. Some of the things that they brought up, like, uh, uh, for instance, um, you know, should they be responsible for social welfare uh, payments to people who come to the UK, you know, and and seek these welfare payments out because it's part of your, uh, European Union law? I can kind of sympathize with that. You know that uh, this this seems to be something that uh, even the European Union might want to uh, reconsider. Uh, but on the other hand, um, you know, trying to get agreements uh, in which uh, the European Union would still be obligated uh, to accept uh, uh, British conditions, uh, even if they leave the uh, European Union, I mean, I think are, are kind of not, not too smart and and also that uh, they would, uh, England would uh, reduce its payments into the European Union, I think is wrong. Mm -hmm. That's already been done before. They are a, uh, they pay more into the Union than they get. But then again, they're one of the richer countries and they get, they get a lot out of it too, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, that's, uh, that's more intangible. And I don't quite know exactly why, you know, and the, you know, their objection to it being a more, uh, uh, you know, going toward a closer union of peoples. Uh, you know, I think, uh, what does that mean? That's pretty subjective, actually. And I think they could certainly live with that. And maybe it's not that bad of an idea. Uh, the European Union gets criticized a lot for its kind of micromanagement of issues in other European countries. And some of it's justified and some of it is not. You know, uh, but uh, to date, the European Union has essentially been a big success. I mean, it's, uh, you know, made p uh, countries more prosperous. It, it has uh, done a lot for those countries that lived under communism uh, until 1989, like Poland and Hungary and the, and the Czech Republic and so on. So it's done a, it's done a lot of good uh, across the board. And I don't know where, where, what Britain expects. I think they, what they would, the people who want to leave, uh, what they expect is in an economic way, we're still going to be treated the way we were before. Mm -hmm. And other than that, we can kiss them off. Well, I think they could definitely kiss them off, but I don't think they're going to be treated the way they were before. I mean, it's pretty soon, you know, the French president or the German chancellor is going to say, well, you know, we don't really need them that much. Mm -hmm. So let them do what they want to do and they can, you know, do the best they can. So I think it's, it's you know, a bad idea. So at any rate.
Um, so kind of harkening back to that idea of that intangible leadership, um, one thing that we talked a lot about, um, my boss Elizabeth and I, when we were talking about the project, was this kind of, um, this way to take ourselves out of using this negative, we can't, this is impossible kind of language. Um, we found that, you know, that's a really big hurdle that people face when talking about the future is their inability to realize potential possibilities or, you know, potential ways to fix problems. So this is kind of a creative question, but if you are given a platform to reach the European community and or the global community, um, what would your call to arms be to kind of invite this outside of the box thinking? Um, yeah, that's a, that's a pretty, I mean, that's, uh, I don't know if you can actually even, uh, you know, answer that question. I mean, the, the, uh, the two biggest problems that uh, Europe has at the moment is that it has had a stagnant economy uh, for some time uh, and that there's very uneven uh, economic development uh, in Europe. And like I say, you know, um, uh, you know, the central part of Europe running from Scandinavia down to the Italian border, very prosperous. I mean, I just spent a, uh, last summer six uh, six weeks in, in Germany, Austria. It's really prosperous. Um, but other parts of Europe obviously are not, you know, uh, including Greece. Well, that's the one issue. That's the second issue, of course, is this enormous push of immigration uh, out of the Middle East and Africa uh, into Europe, which has continued unabated even during the winter months. Uh, and the fact that, you know, um, uh, some countries are willing to, to take these immigrants, have been willing to take these immigrants and others have not. And it's been virtually impossible uh, for the Europeans to work out a common program on what to do, you know, how many immigrants to accept. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, uh, you know, with some countries like uh, Hungary and the former uh, Soviet bloc countries basically saying, well, we can't accept any uh, to, uh, you know, very little interest of immigrants going to France and Spain. Uh, generally, they either want to go to the uh, United Kingdom and now especially go to Germany. Um, and for a couple of reasons they want to go to, uh, to Germany is, uh, first of all, there's a lot of support, you know, social support. And there is at least the possibility of jobs. The problem is, you know, 80% of those people don't have the skills for the jobs. Mm -hmm. It's a very high-skilled, you know, population. So those are the, you know, to, uh, the, the challenge uh, would be, you know, to first state, you know, what, what possibilities do we have in accepting immigrants? You know, what are the, the numbers that we can accept and the ages that we can accept them at? Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, for those people who are going to stay. Now, a lot of those people who are there are there because of violence in the Middle East, and, you know, they would go back if, if you know, things uh, stabilized. Uh, but a great number of them uh, do not want to. Also, you know, the clash, of, it's a literally a clash of cultures, mm -hmm. you know, a Western European, you know, democratic values, secularist, 
uh, you know, type of culture in a Middle Eastern, uh, you know, with a with probably a dozen variations of Islamic culture, and you know that there's going to be a clash. Uh, you know, and how how much can you absorb? I mean, Germany took a million people last year. Can they take another million mm -hmm. this year? I don't know, but there's a point where they can't keep taking a million people each year. It's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, they're, like I say, because I think of the difference in economic development and history, uh, they they simply don't want to share the burden. People don't want to share the you know the Hungarians. Are you kidding? You know, we don't. We can't afford them. And I was actually at a thing in New York City a week and a half ago. And, I mean, I heard the funniest thing. You know, sometimes, you know, history is a, has an influence. I mean, this one hung, uh, a woman who lives in New York and who's Hungarian, you know, she said, listen, you know, we were under, a, a, you know, a Islamic Muslim occupation for 150 years. That ended at the end of the 17th century. She said, we don't want any more. You know, mm -hmm. we don't want any more. Interesting, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I just about, I said, well, you know, that's it's the way it is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so kind of thinking in, you know, the fact that there are all of these different issues that need to somehow be resolved and thinking that, you know, there's a lot of possibility, but there's also a lot of limitations. Um, what do you think the citizen's role, the average European citizen, what do you think their role should be in kind of procuring this more even future for the European Yeah, well, you know, it's, again, it's different from country to country. Mm -hmm. And the responsibilities of citizenry is different from country to country. And their wealth is different, you know, from country to country. And uh, if, you've, if you've got a lot, it's easier to share. Mm -hmm. <laughs> than if you've got a little. Uh, and or you've had the Hungarian experience like, uh, like that lady I met, uh, uh, and so on. So uh, it, uh, it's a big challenge to, you know, and I don't know if you can resolve these problems. Um, maybe, that's the, maybe that's the wrong word, maybe to alleviate uh, some of these problems. And maybe even to be truthful, you know, mm -hmm. and... You know, at some point in time, you can say, well, you know, we can take uh, this many people and they have to be spread around or, or else to, to say we just can't do it. We just don't have it within us uh, to uh, be able to engage on this type of uh, problem. I mean, uh, I can't remember. I don't know exactly how many Syrians have been displaced. Is something like ten million Syrians have been dis displaced through this war? Um, you know, there's a lot they can do. You know, to you know, they passed uh, measures to you know spend three billion dollars in Turkey to help Turkey um, uh, keep those people there, and uh, they've got to do something about Greece to help the Greeks. Uh, you know, first last year they beat up on the Greeks uh, for not you know coming up. Uh, paying their debts, and now they're they they they're dependent on the Greeks to you know uh, you know stop the uh, insurgent you know the insurgent masses coming into Europe. So it's it's very it's very hard, and they uh, you know there's some some countries frankly they're just not interested in, in doing anything as long as they don't come to our our country. And this is interesting enough. It's especially true of the former you know communist countries like. Mm -hmm. 
you know, Poland, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, Hung Hungary, and so on. Uh, so uh, that's one issue. Another issue that would help a lot is if, you know, their economy started to, to grow again. Mm -hmm. I mean, they've been stagnant now for about, not every, not every country, but for the last 10 years, it's been very, very rough. In a, you know, like in this country, if there's full employment and people's wages are going up, you're never going to hear anything about immigration. You'll start hearing about immigration as soon as you know, the unemployment figures go up and wages become stagnant. Mm -hmm. That's when you all said we can't have all this immigration. So, uh, any rate, and, and the other thing that I don't see much of is, you know, how... You know, uh, uh, to, you know, uh, I see very little positive coming out of European leadership regarding this immigration. I mean, it could solve a lot of their problems. Uh, and that is, you know, they have a demographic problem, uh, you know, as basically we, we do too in the mm -hmm. U.S., but being welcome, welcoming to immigrants, it alleviates that. Uh, but, you know, how are these immigrants who are coming up, uh, coming here, what is our expectation for them? You know, are they the ones that are going to, you know, uh, uh, learn to become butchers and bakers and candlestick makers uh, so that they can contribute to society and so on? I mean, it, it basically is the way it works, but I, I see very little of that, that coming out of Europe. And I think it would have to. All right, and then just one final question. Um, so while we're clearly talking about Europe, um, what sort of implications do you think that the European Union's future has for America or for the larger global community? Well, for America, it's, uh, it's, it's very uh, big. Uh, uh, we are negotiating a trade treaty uh, with the Europeans, uh, which would be uh, very good for us, uh, but has run into strong opposition mm -hmm. in Europe. Um, for a number of different reasons, because I think our our cultures are dividing. U.S. culture is dividing from European culture, uh, and it's kind of an interesting thing because as the cultures divide, what what trumps everything essentially is is trade and security. I mean, uh, you know, the Europeans, you know, they don't understand why there's a climate debate in the U.S. Mm -hmm. I mean, you could not get elected to public office in most European countries, maybe in England, <laughs> interestingly enough. But even there, it'd be hard if you believed that, that there was a climate change going on. You could not get elected. Left, right, or center. And yet half of our Congress doesn't believe that climate mm -hmm. change is happening. Things like the gun culture of the U.S. is just anathema to the Europeans. They just don't get it. You know, people don't get it. People, I mean, 2014, uh, German police killed seven people during the whole year. Mm -hmm. Here, there's a thousand, a couple hundred, hundred policemen get shot here every kill every year. And um, you know, whether it's healthcare, uh, you know, all kinds of things. You know, the cultures are dividing. Uh, but at the same time, I keep saying, you know, trade and and security seems to trump it all. Trade is enormous. The biggest uh, trade block is, is the U.S. And, and, not, and Europe, not, not the U.S. and Asia. And it would be very, very good if, uh, if, if this uh, treaty came to pass. 
because I think we would eventually, the Europeans and the U.S. would set the standards for trade for the rest of the world. But it's going to be very hard because there's a, there's a lot of opposition in, in Europe to, to doing more with the U.S., uh, which I think is uh, a pity. Uh, but we haven't shown a lot of leadership, you know. And, I mean, you can imagine how the Europeans feel about somebody like the Donald. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the, you know, they, they can't understand anything mm -hmm. like that. Uh, you know, those are all parliamentary systems where, you know, somebody just can't buy themselves into becoming prime minister or chancellor or president of France. Just, that just would never, never uh, happen. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I mean, I, I, I uh, and I think uh, in order to get this trade treaty, uh, you know, uh, uh, Dr. Merkel really has to put her shoulder to the wheel and uh, and get it done uh, and I don't I personally don't see that happening with all the other things that are going on there uh, but a, uh, a prosperous and a democratic rule of law of Europe is the most natural partner of the US in the world uh, so yeah I mean I think we should do everything uh, we can to maintain very good relations in Europe and to you know, the Europeans did the uh, uh, Iranian nuclear agreement with us. Uh, they're uh, part and parcel of the negotiations over the over a Middle Eastern uh, peace settlement and so on. So, yeah, it's still the, the one place where you can basically go and you don't have to be afraid of anything really bad happening to you. I mean, mm -hmm. anyway, an accident can happen anywhere. Uh, but, you know... Uh, you're probably not going to get sick and you're probably not going to get mugged. Uh, you might have your purse stolen, but, uh, you know, so, yeah, it's a it's, it's pretty livable uh, region. And, and they have a lot to, to give to the world. I mean, uh, you, know, they, you know, their cities are very livable. And although they're not as wealthy as the United States is, and they're not as entrepreneurial as the United States is, and they're not as yeah, welcoming to immigrants uh, as we are, boy, they sure are better organized. And they do a lot for their people. Yeah, I think we should do everything we can to maintain a close relationship to Europe. All right. Um, are there any other points that you want to bring up about the emerging future of the European Union? Just anything well, else? Well, you know, right now, right now, it's gosh, it's very pessimistic. I mm -hmm. mean, and um, uh, about a week and a half ago, I was talking to someone who was at Davos. Uh, the Davos conference always comes b before the Munich Security Conference. It takes place in a village in Switzerland. It's a combination of the world's richest people. Really rich, mega, you know. It's the uh, uh, Jeff Bezos uh, type, uh, the Bill Gates types, and then kind of public intellectuals, you know, get there to try and solve the world's problems. And as I understand it, the, you know, crisis in Europe uh, was the major, you know, point of uh, discussion. Mm. It is a crisis, but I think they'll overcome the crisis. That's... About, that's about it. But some, you know, they, they've got to be honest about this immigration type of thing. And so far, I don't think they have it.
You've been listening to the EU Futures Podcast, a project of the Center for the Study of Europe at Boston University, funded by a Getting to Know Europe grant from the European Commission delegation in Washington, D.C.